Hirai na hiva hiva opi ilani he Heleo a heleo mahalo i he Hirai na hiva hiva opi ilani he Heleo a heleo mahalo i he Hirai na you're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Chip Fletcher is a climate scientist and geologist who doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to the state of Mother Earth in extreme weather due to global warming. We had planned to talk to him this morning after two months of record-breaking heat around the world, not imagining the tragedy that is unfolding this week on Maui's west side. The death toll due to the raging wildfires that hit this past Tuesday night is expected to climb above the 55 announced uh, last night. This is believed to be the worst natural disaster to hit in recent times, and it made for a sobering conversation this morning with Fletcher. Climate change is weather on steroids, and we've been lucky so far. We've seen these wildfires take place in California for several years. We've seen entire towns in California burned to the ground, very similar to what's happened in Lahaina. And elsewhere in the world, we've seen enormous heat waves. Last year, last summer, a series of heat waves in Europe killed 61,000 people. This is how climate change operates. It slowly raises the stress level through heating the air, uh, through changes in rainfall, changes in the wind. We've seen a decrease in trade wind days. The trade winds are coming more from the east, which means they're warmer. They're interacting with their ridge tops differently, producing less clouds, um, you know, contributing to the reduced rainfall. We see more drought. Drought conditions contributed to the tragedy in Lahaina. And then a big issue is the guinea grass, invasive species. This grass has grown up land that used to be plantation land, sugar land. It's very resilient. It grows very rapidly in moist conditions when it rains, and then it will dry out very rapidly uh, in the ensuing dry period. And it's fuel for fire. And it's fuel for fire, exactly. That's right. And Lahaina is located downhill from a uh, series of steep watersheds. The wind from Hurricane Dora Uh, accelerated downhill, blowing multiple fire fronts through the grass, through the uh, vegetated uplands of the watersheds. And so this accelerating wind and the invasive species, the fuel from the grass, the dry conditions of a dry summer made drier by climate change. It's a horrendous convergence of multiple factors. We had reached out to you because we were just coming off of July, right? The hottest month on record. And June was the hottest month on record as well. And so I'm worried because, you know, we're not through hurricane season yet. All it will take is, you know, a big heavy rain and all that will go into the ocean, affect our coral reefs. And, you know, there could be more and possibly worse hurricanes still to come this year. That's right. There is a trend of hurricanes getting larger, wetter, intensifying more rapidly. We saw Hurricane Lane intensify through several categories literally overnight and migrating away from the equator towards the poles, which will put hurricanes in the central North Pacific, where we're located, 
uh, on the same latitude as the Hawaiian Islands. And so although we were lucky with Hurricane Dora and it passed south of the Big Island, you know, it was a large, geographically large hurricane and, and its winds created this horrendous event, driving fire. So we need to be extremely vigilant. And it's because of these events and the likelihood of the greater likelihood of them uh, forming now with climate change that our community needs to solve problems like homelessness, affordable housing, becoming more independent in terms of our electricity generation and our fuel production. We are isolated out here in the Pacific, and weather events driven by intense climate change means that our community must be more resilient and we must pull together to not only prepare for these events, but to recover from them afterwards. I mean, you guys are the scientists. You're seeing that, that all is not well. What else do we need to be doing? Or or have we? you think we've reached the point of no return? I've seen the stories about 1.5, you know, to stay alive, and, and that was pretty sobering. Yeah, it does look like 1.5 degrees Celsius warming above the pre-industrial global average temperature is not going to be attainable. But 1.6? You know, 1.7, 1.8, every fraction of a degree becomes a new target. It's never too late. We always need to focus on decreasing our carbon production. We are polluting the atmosphere with gases that trap heat that would otherwise escape to space. And we need to focus intensely on decreasing that gas production, carbon dioxide principally, but methane and other types of gases as well. There's no other solution out there that is going to come online fast enough and at scale to solve this problem for us. There's a lot of discussion of global engineering, pulling carbon out of the air, other types of pathways to net zero, but those are far away. And the net zero pathways where we grow additional forests or protect uh, ecosystems in an attempt to offset our carbon emissions taking place elsewhere. Many of the contracts that companies have set up to purchase net zero carbon offsets are shown to be bogus. The companies didn't intend for it to be that way, but the accounting and auditing of these carbon offsets have been revealed to be illegitimate. It really boils down to only one honest approach, which is decreasing our greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm I'm so proud of the fact that Hawaii is leading the way on this. It's very difficult. And people ask, why should Hawaii bother decreasing its greenhouse gas emissions when we are such a small component of the global carbon budget? Well, the reason we bother is because it is the moral thing to do. We can't rely on other people to solve this problem for us. And it's the practical thing to do because generating our own electricity will make us more resilient in the face of the extreme weather hazards. And you just gave a talk where you pointed out that we are spending more now on renewable energy than we ever did. Yes, globally. That is true. There is good news taking place out there. Last year, 2022, we spent as much on renewable energy as we spent on oil and gas production, something like $1.4 trillion. And this year, 2023, they're projecting $1.7 trillion to be spent on renewable energy generation around the world and only 1 million, excuse me, billion, excuse me, trillion, 1 trillion on oil and gas exploration. So it does appear as if the amount of energy generated from fossil fuels, which has for decades been on the order of 82 to 83 percent of global energy production, stubbornly unchanging. It does appear as if uh, 
that may begin to budge. And we should watch over the next several years to see if that 82% of global energy generation from fossil fuels starts to come down. At that point, we know we'll have passed a sort of a tipping point in, in global energy system and we can start to celebrate and focus intensely on accelerating that decrease in energy from fossil fuels. Even that is insufficient. For instance, if we spend $1.7 trillion this year on renewable energy in order to stop global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, we really should be spending $4.5 trillion on renewable energy. So we are still a long way from the amount of investment in renewable energy on a global scale that we need uh, to to arrest this climate change problem. Things do look promising for the development of hydrogen, but you know that's long-term. What are your immediate concerns short-term, given this uh, natural disaster that we've seen on Maui? Well, we need to continue focusing on building a cohesive com- community. You know, Hawaii has, we have a cultural indigenous narrative a history here, a history of loving each other and loving the land and the ocean. And this needs to be made more prominent in our policies and laws by pulling together, by loving our neighbors, by unifying our communities, we can become a very climate resilient state. Homelessness, unaffordable housing, the cost of living, these are major problems that are on the radar screen of our current governor, and I see them as climate solution problems. Building climate resilience is not just about cutting our greenhouse gas emissions. It's about building a cohesive community that loves one another so that when we do get hit by these disasters, we pull together rather than pull apart. Yes, and we'll keep that in the forefront. But thank you so much, Jeb. We do appreciate your time. Thank you, Catherine. Take care. That was Chip Fletcher, Dean of the University of Hawaii SOAS, the School of Ocean, Earth Science, and Technology, and former chair of the Climate Commission, talking about the recent wildfires on Maui and climate change. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. I'm Russell Subiono, host of the HPR podcast, This Is Our Hawaii. Come with me as I travel across our state to talk to communities about the legacy of large land ownership, and how that impacts our residents' sense of belonging. Okomako Hawaii Keia. This is our Hawaii. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Honolulu Civil Beats, Marcel Henri joins us today for our reality check with a story that was a joint effort by a number of their reporters uh, who happened to be in Maui. Uh, good morning, Marcel. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, and you folks were uh, planning to be there for an event when all this unfolded. 
Yeah, some of the backstory on this is just kind of a behind the scenes on our reporting, I suppose. So Civil Beat was going to have one of our various pop up newsrooms scheduled for Wednesday on Maui. Uh, we canceled that earlier in the week as soon as the the winds and the wildfires. Uh, we saw that that was just going to become a general issue. And in fact, uh, one of my colleagues who really reports a lot on wildfires, that's Thomas Heaton. He kept his ticket to go to Maui thinking, you know, well, well there are wildfires underway. Let's go. Uh, also, our, our photographer, Kevin Fujii, let's let's see what what photos we can get, what information. Let's just see what's going to happen. We'll take the first flight out on Wednesday morning. Um, and so you can imagine, I mean, this this was a, a, a pre scheduled trip uh, to just get there early Wednesday morning. And of course, when he arrived, I mean, this was this was a global story. Yes, and uh, the headline uh, for your story today is that uh, uh, some of Maui's top emergency officials were off-island as these wildfires hit, Lahaina. Yeah, so with Thomas on the ground, we've had a couple other reporters on the ground in, in West Maui. Uh, one of the things we were able to track down is, as we try and, and piece together, you know, uh, details of the response and situation and, and just get more details of, of what happened. And one of the things that shook loose in our reporting was that two of the, the top uh, res emergency response leaders for the island, that would be the, the Maui Fire Department Chief Bradford Ventura and the uh, Maui Emergency Management Agency Administrator Hector Andaya, uh, neither of them were actually on the island um, as certainly as the, the Lahaina disaster was unfolding, but they also were off island earlier in the day when it was clear that, you know, those those wildfires were already well underway. Uh, we know for sure that that uh, Andaya was on Oahu. Um, and, you know, this is it's not clear what, if at all, how this this might have impacted the response, uh, but it was still certainly noteworthy uh, to, to report. Um, and, you know, we're still just, we're trying to piece together kind of the timeline, uh, particularly regarding the, the evacuation order. Um, I should also note there was a, a big press conference yesterday uh, in the afternoon with, with Governor Josh Green. Um, Ventura was there. Uh, the Maui police chief was there. A lot of people taking questions. Andaya was not there. Um, he was at the emergency operations center, is what we were told. Yes, and you know, in monitoring that, I know that was one of the questions that came up. Uh, you know, to clarify, uh, you know, did the warning, um, emergency warning alerts, go out? Right, and we didn't get a lot of details. Uh, the the Maui mayor uh, was saying he's not sure if if the sirens or if the alarm warnings went off or if, if the blaze hit so fast that it might have burned out any warning systems um he did mention that hotel resident uh, visitors up in kaanapali were asked to shelter in place uh, but but they they really didn't even specify what if any evacuation order went out they just said it, it all happened so fast we don't even know how the, the uh, Maui uh, Emergency Management Agency would have even been able to coordinate at the, the speed of the fire. So, you know, they were they were asked for kind of a, a, a bit of a timeline of how it went down. And, and basically what we got was it was so fast. We don't know even how they would have been able to, to do it. So there's still just a lot of 
questions that we're, we're trying to piece together as we, you know, as we unpack everything that happened. Yeah, I mean, I know I saw those alerts on TV about the evacuation notices, you know, uh, all these different neighborhoods they were telling, you know, go now. Uh, yeah. And I understand that there were also some uh, cell phone alerts. But, yeah, you don't know how widely that was, uh, you know, spread there on that island, given that they had some outages and so many power poles were down. So, yeah, right. that, that is, right. a, a like you said, lots of questions to be answered. And they're still in the thick of just trying to manage this burnt out area because it's such a large area. Right. Right. It's 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 all overwhelming uh, for sure. You can tell they are. You know, like everybody on Maui, they're 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 exhausted. You you know, and, and, and they're very sensitive to to questions right now, and it's it's certainly understandable. But still, got to ask them. <laughs> so absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Andre with today's reality check. Uh, to read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. time now, a large set of eyes have been pouring over zoning across the islands, and for the first time, a collection of zoning maps uh, has been compiled. It's in line with a national zoning atlas to see what ails us when it comes to barriers in building what we need most, and that's housing. Here's the director of the Hawaii Zoning Atlas, Trey Gordner. The Hawaii Zoning Atlas is uh, an online interactive map that shows how zoning laws treat housing. So where it's allowed and where it isn't allowed by right. And other states have also started these projects recognizing that zoning, also known as land use laws or land use regulations, are in many ways some of the most important laws uh, affecting your life. They determine where you can live, where you can eat, where you can shop, where you go for a park. They essentially determine what can be built where, to what heights and widths and setbacks, what those buildings can be used for. And so in a true sense, we are getting what we planned for in Hawaii. And this has you know, been a concern because there are just so many barriers to building housing. And I know under the previous uh, administration here just in Honolulu that they've tried to discourage the monster home building and encourage and, and drive builders to areas where they can put up multifamily units. So how does this atlas help to deal with all that? So the first thing to note about um, zoning, and this is true not just of Hawaii, but of many places that's inspired these projects, is that there's something called the missing middle. There's sort of a gap between single family housing, which we would think of as your typical suburban type development, and what we think of as multifamily housing, which out here we often imagine as um, high rise, high rise apartments or condos, right? And that is in large part because the law has very clear categories for single family residential and for multifamily apartment type residential. Where the law kind of comes apart is in between. So there are many places where more people would like to live, not a lot more people, but a little more people. And the current laws that we have on the books only allow so many to be there. So the sort of monster home problem that you see, as, as I 
uh, see it, and I think other zoning atlas people see it, is that there are more people who want to live in a certain area than are able to under the existing laws. And so they are trying to add some more people there, right? They're trying to respond to that demand. And simply declaring such practices illegal, I think, is impractical. It doesn't seem to be working. And there's another bill up, you know, before the council now discussing how to do that. But the approach that um, I see is really necessary is to make room for um, those, those missing middle housing units. So duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, um, eight to 12 units and a little higher. And the important piece of that is um, that construction costs are actually lowest for those kinds of buildings. So when you have kind of a mid-low or mid-rise apartment, you can think of it that way, you can still do stick-built construction. So it doesn't cost that much more than a single-family home. It's not like you're building a skyscraper. And yet, many more people can share that residence, can share that small bit of land. And so um, some folks have called this the gentle density model. But this is at least a little bit of what the Zoning Atlas is trying to bring up in our land use regulations and, and some of the solutions we're trying to explore. And in many of our counties, zoning codes haven't been overhauled in a long time. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, I was just looking at the land use ordinance. There have been some minor updates in Oahu over the years, uh, especially around special districts, transit-oriented development, Waikiki, a few other places. But for practical purposes, the decisions that were made in 1986 are still determining much of what we are able to build and where we are able to build it to this day. It's also the late 80s for the other islands as well. To my knowledge, there are discussions of updating the land use ordinances. But for instance, you know, Bill 10 on Oahu has been going and going and going since I think 2017, and it still doesn't seem like we're, we're too close to, um, to passing that. So Maui is considering some changes, Big Island is considering some changes, but it's a complicated set of regulations. And another piece that we're hoping with the zoning atlas is that more people are engaged and more people understand the actual implications of these rules and, and why it's important for everyone to weigh in on the kind of community they want to see in the future. You're rolling this out this month. And so what's the hope uh, as you been able to study, you know, these zoning laws? There are two components of our launch. The first is the online interactive map that I mentioned before. So anyone can go on to hawaiizoningatlas.com and explore that map for themselves. There's a brief guided tutorial, and then you're able to click around on the map, add some conditions, and see what percentage of the land is available for single-family development? What percentage of the land is available for multifamily development, for instance? Where is it? How does that compare um, from island to island, from county to county? And work that we're doing right now is how does that compare to some of our other big uses for land, like resorts, like military, like uh, golf courses? So we are starting to explore this data ourselves, but the second component that's launching uh, later this month is actually the data set. The data set is open. It's freely available to anyone to explore. So we hope that the general public will be able to look at the map and, and understand a little bit more about the laws and think about the kinds of rules that are, are leading to the system we have. But for academics, for researchers, for journalists, for students, they're also able to download the underlying data set and explore it in new and creative ways. And we're really just at the beginning of what we're able to do. But the power behind it is because we are using the same data standard at the city and county level here, 
that everyone else is using in all of the other 21-odd atlases across the country. For the first time, we are able to have apples-to-apples -apples comparisons between our jurisdictions and many jurisdictions in the rest of the country in the detail of their zoning, what we're permitting, the lot sizes, the height restrictions, how much use we allow, and we're also allowing for comparisons over time. You know, a lot of this has been intuition so far, but we're sort of bringing the power of numbers to it to look and say, as we create these reforms, as we make these changes to minimum lot sizes or setbacks or height or whatever, um, what sort of effect is this having on housing production? And how might we even simulate or model additional changes that could help us with housing production and housing affordability? So you expect this to be user-friendly for just the average homeowner wants to know what's going on in the neighborhood, uh, but then also there's a component for academics, for, for planners, policymakers, just to be able to get the best information to help guide us. That's right. That's right. And then the third group of people who, who have been interested in this work so far uh, are the advocates, the people who are already considering policy changes, making recommendations at the state and local level. They've expressed an interest in using this data, helping uh, inform their talking points as well. Okay, and then you're gonna launch this on the 14th? August 14th is when the map and the data will be available for anyone. And that was planner Trey Gordner talking about next week's rollout of the Hawaii Zoning Atlas. The Atlas will hopefully help us learn about what's holding back progress on construction of housing. And we should note that uh, next week, the Maui County Council's Housing and Land Use Committee will meet to address emergency housing and shelter for residents displaced by the fires. Uh, you can go to hawaiizoningatlas.com on August 14th to see those maps and look at the data about zoning in your area. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. This week on Science Friday, we talk about Amelia Earhart, the tuna fish. And she said, you will not believe the story of this fish. And pod pregnancies outside the womb. There's such a market in America for birth, and I felt it would be funny to extend this to seeing the fetus as a possible consumer. On Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Darling, don't quit your daydream It's your life that you're making It ain't big enough If it doesn't scare the hell out of you If it makes you nervous It's probably worth it Why save it for sleep when you
The former Waikoloa Maneuver Area, or WMA, is a military training area that once occupied 100,000 acres on the Big Island. It stretched from the Pu'ukapu area in Waimea to Lalamilo and down to the Kwaihai and Puako along the Kohala coast. In 1943, the Navy started training troops being sent to World War II on the land, and uh, which was owned uh, by Parker Ranch at that time. The land was eventually returned to the ranch, but the problem of unexploded ordnance remains in some areas. Tomorrow, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers will be holding a public meeting in Waimea to get input on an area that's nearly ready to be declared free of hazards. The conversations Russell Subiano talked with program manager Dave Griffin about the area and about the proposed plan. As the U.S. entered into World War II, we needed to train soldiers for some of the battles that would be forthcoming in the Pacific. And so the DOD in 1943 reached out to Richard Smart, who was then the owner of Parker Ranch, and, and signed a lease agreement license agreement with him for approximately 185,000 acres to allow the Marines to come over and train both with U.S. munitions to simulate landings and artillery fire. They set up an area called Camp Tarawa, which is right there. Its footprint is, is Waimea Town. But they also practiced with Japanese munitions, understanding that the engineers needed to be trained that when they got to these areas that we were trying to capture or control to take back and as part of the war effort, that they would encounter potential Japanese munitions as well. So the Waikoloa Maneuver Area, as it was called, operated between uh, 1943 and 1945. So some of your relatives, your kapuna, may recall the soldiers being in the area. But yes, the history goes back the 40s and in support of the war effort and the soldiers that trained there went on to you know some fairly fierce battles Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal and elsewhere. I took a look at some maps of the WMA in terms of size I've read that it's about the size of a hundred thousand football fields or an area larger than the island of Lanai. Is, is that approximately correct? It is and so maybe a little bit too much detail but although the DOD leased 185,000 acres, they only used 100,000 acres. And if we say a football field is an acre, then the area that was leased and used by the military is approximately 100,000 acres. And just like Kaho'olawe and Makua Valley and other former training areas, there's always public concern that there might be unrecovered ordinance in the former WMA. Can you talk about the status of that ordinance? Could there still be some unexploded grenades or bombs or, or anything out there? Yes. Uh, you know, and so the uh, WMA is divided into 22 munitions response sites. Those are geographic areas that are carved out. And so if you can imagine when the military was here, they had an impact area where they used their field artillery, and then they had maneuver area where there really wasn't the live fire training or shouldn't have been live fire training. It was more to access and egress to. And so, you know, the, the military recognized that. And again, we're in the middle of, the, of World War II. They came over, they trained. There were, at that time, a percentage of dud rounds that didn't detonate as designed and were left in the impact area. In 1954, the DOD came back, you know, rudimentary techniques, mostly visual, looking on the surface, but did a sweep then 
and then you know we had a, a maybe a long delay and it wasn't really until you know Nixon signed the EPA and, and we started to get some environmental rules in place and the and the defense environmental fund was funded in 1986 that we then had sort of the money and the process you know with the circular process in place to kind of come out and look at cleaning up these munitions and so early on in the process it was about risk reduction we understood that there was the potential for dud munitions to be present at WMA and we did a lot of removal effort early on in the program to kind of pick up what we could find and now we're back into a more focused circular effort where we're we're taking the projects that haven't been through the remedial investigation phase through a remedial investigation and on to remedial action so that we can reach what what we call response complete. When I was growing up, we lived for a time in the Lalamilo area on the dry side of town. And as kids do, you know, me and my brothers and friends, we did a lot of exploring in the pastures and, and rivers in the area. And I remember coming across this container, like a shipping container, just kind of sitting in the pasture. You know, of course, we weren't supposed to be there. It was, it's all private property, and but we were kids and we were nosy and adventurous. The doors were looked like it had been opened up, so we just went inside, and it contained a lot of miscellaneous military equipment, including several rounds of ammunition. And as you can imagine, you know, we're young boys, and we felt like we hit a jackpot, but it wasn't until recently that it occurred to me that it might have been tied to the Waikoloa Maneuver area. Does that sound in line with the activities that took place there? No. Typically... In the 40s, the military didn't keep stuff in shipping containers. And you can imagine if you fast forward into the 80s and 90s, sitting out in the weather for 40 years, that there would be this cachet of miscellaneous, you know, military equipment. So I really can't guess how it got there. But I would tell you that if your son was as curious as you and, and was running around, they would have been exposed to our 3Rs education program. And that's recognized ammunition, retreat from the area, and then report it to an adult. Can you talk a little bit more about that 3R program and what people should do if they do happen to come across a piece of ordinance? Absolutely. And and I would tell you, you know, when in doubt, you know, make the call. So the procedure is that if you recognize something that you suspect could be an ordinance, you would recognize it, right? And, and you, you don't know what it is, right? It's a cylindrical piece of metal. It might be a muffler that fell off a car or cylindrical, long, looks like a munition. So the first thing you would do is sort of recognize it's something that's in the environment that probably shouldn't be there. And then, and you know, not to touch it, not to invent, don't go up and, and pick it up and turn it around or, or see what it is or pick it up and bring it back to somebody that might know what it is. Just leave it in place. And then retreat, you know, to get back away from it and then report it. As an adult, you would call 911. Although many, probably 12, 13 years old, are perfectly capable of calling 911. We do tell the children that they should get to a known response or a known adult and call 911 and the police will come out. They are trained to do this. The police force there in in Waikoloa is used to sort of getting these calls. And then at that, that the police will work with an EOD squad if required. Can you talk a little bit about the recovery or the cleanup process? Can you talk about the steps that the Army is taking to 
protect human and environmental health and to clean up any remaining munitions in the area? Absolutely. And we've touched on it a little bit earlier, but we follow the, comp- uh, the, the circle of process, and that is the comprehensive environmental response, compensation, and liability act, CERCLA. And really the first word on that is comprehensive, right? And so it is a very detailed process that we go through. And it starts with the preliminary assessment, and then it walks through the different steps through remedial action or if required, long-term management. And so we prioritize the 22 sites at WMA for those that have the highest risk to the public, places in the impact area, you know, places that are set for development would get a, a lower score than areas that are outside or, or don't present as much risk. And we sit down with the Hawaii Department of Health and rack and stack our priorities. So between identifying it and actually going out and doing the cleanup uh, will take us a number of years. The final proposed plan for Sector 15 munitions response site will be the subject of a public meeting in Waimea this Saturday, August 12th. What will the community have the opportunity to do or learn during this public meeting? So we are, as part of the circle of process, the piece of that is that we need to bring the community in to the process. And we do that at the proposed plan public meeting. So that means, in layman's terms, that the Army Corps of Engineers has gone out and has done an investigation and has proposed a remedy. And in this case, at the Sector 15 project, which is the subject of Saturday's meeting, we're proposing that no further action is required. And that's based on multiple lines of evidence that indicate that the military never used that parcel for munitions training. And so what we'd like to do is have the public come out. We're going to brief our investigation and of what we found, and then invite them to comment if they think that no further action is the correct remedy, the correct future that site. In other words, it would basically be declared clean and we would not go out, spend any more time, money, or effort out there because we have found it to be clean. It would be at response complete, no further action. And so this is the public's opportunity to come out and, and talk to us about that and tell us what they think. And just to be clear, it's specific to Sector 15, which is the 11,000 acres located east of Waimea, primarily comprised of Pu'ukapu Hawaiian homelands, including Kuhio Village and the Kanu'oka'aina School. That's correct. And it's very specific to this parcel and what our investigation found there and what our path forward is there. Hey, Dave, thanks so much for your time. You've got it. Thank you. That was Dave Griffin, the Waikoloa Maneuver Area Program Manager. He was talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. And again, that public meeting set for tomorrow, 2 p.m., Waimea Elementary School. We'll have a link to that plan on the conversation page of our website later today. I like to think that Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory lives in a Manoa laboratory. It's where retired University of Hawaii professor Skip Bettenbender likes to use Hawaiian sugarcane and Hawaiian-grown cacao to create a homegrown craft treat. For the last decade, he's watched a specialty crop gain traction so that locally grown cacao and sweet chocolate bars can be found on store shelves. The crop has come a long way since cacao first appeared as a novelty in King Kalakaua's garden. 
Chocolate giants like Guitar, Hershey, and Nestle all have looked our way. Hawaii is the only state that grows cacao. We head down the rabbit hole and trace cacao history and talk about hopes for the future. Bittenbender and many of the students at the University of Hawaii College of Tropical Agriculture have been intimately involved in building an industry through trial and error. Cacao has been in Hawaii since around the 1830s, shortly after coffee arrived. And those plantings died out. It was in what was Foster Botanical Garden, Don Marin's garden back in those days. And then it showed up again in the mid-19th century. And by the late 19th century, there were two uh, chaps in Hilo who made a little planting. And there was concern that maybe this is something that Hawaii might want to get into. Well, they were very much inspired particularly the legislature, because during World War One, the cacao movement from West Africa over to uh, the United States and other places was blocked by the German submarines. So the price of chocolate went up sky high, and the legislature wanted to know if maybe we could get in on this. And so the plantings were made by what became today the CETAR, the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. After the war, of course, the prices came back down again and nothing happened for a while. And then by uh, mid-20th century, one of our uh, college deans said, look, you know, if we really want to know if this is going to work, we've got to plant about 10 acres and let it go for 10 years and see where we uh, are. The target yield, they thought it would be break-even, was about 600 pounds of dry bean per acre. Well, a little bit later on, Dick Hamilton, who was my uh, predecessor in the department, was horticulture in those days. Today, it's called tropical plant and soil sciences. He said, no, there's no way that cacao was going to make it. And why? Because our labor is too expensive. We don't have quite the right land and uh, so on and so forth, but things have changed since then. And part of that change, I think we can lay to people like John Nancy, a uh, entrepreneur in Portland, Oregon, who uh, wanted to sell beans from different origins to uh, chefs and whatnot, but he realized that they couldn't do anything with it unless they had the right equipment. And so he uh, experimented with all sorts of consumer-grade food processing equipment, including the uh, the champion juicer, small hobbyist uh, hop crushers, hair dryers, and the most important piece were stone-on-stone uh, -stone wet grinders, which were very readily available out of India. That laid the groundwork for the craft chocolate industry. Meanwhile, early to mid 1980s, Jim Walsh arrived. He um, arranged for some of his people to bring back promising uh, genetic material, promising varieties of cacao from various experiment stations in Indonesia and Malaysia and the Philippines and brought them into the Keao uh, area on the Big Island. He uh, was also talking with folks like Nestle and Hershey's about how they could get involved with him and get things going. He did put in uh, some grafted uh, trees and did get some farmers to buy in and things got going. There is a big orchard still in Keao in the manager's field, which has been largely deserted, but a lot of people would sneak in there and 
grab pods to uh, start farms. One of the farms was planted by a guy by the name of Clarence Hodge up in uh, Oluwaloa. And he uh, planted up, he planted a, according to Walsh, six feet by four feet spacings, which is way too close for our conditions. He got things going. It was very rough. He had to break holes in the uh-uh lava with the hydraulic ram. I was there the day they were busting the holes and planted the trees. But he was a fairly elderly man. He came ill, went back to the mainland and died. Farm was uh, neglected, but was later purchased. It was just a one acre operation by Bob and Pam Cooper. And they started up the original Hawaiian chocolate factory in Holuoloa. Their uh, model was to make chocolate. They put a lot of money into custom-made equipment. A little bit later on in that decade, Mike McLean was working with Dole. Dole was interested in diversifying at that time, and Mike uh, came over to uh, Waimanalo, where we had a uh, planting of cacao that Joe DeFrank had started, funded by the Governor's Agriculture Coordinating Committee to begin registering various herbicides for weed control in young uh, cacao orchards. Joe got that job done and did not cut down the trees. We let them uh, grow and over time they were sort of forgotten and we turned off the water. But uh, a number of trees did survive. There were some trees at the Peabark Experiment Station in Hilo run by the USDA. The uh, orchard in Dole started to grow well, at, but Dole decided to back out of the uh, diversified ag portion, and that the coffee was abandoned out there, the cacao was abandoned, but not that they were not cut down, they were not plowed under. So in the early 90s, Mike Conway at Dole began to rejuvenate the uh, cacao orchard and uh, they did had some taste tests run uh, cooperating with guitars chocolate in california and they said hey this is pretty good stuff so they continued to develop the uh, orchard in uh, 2005 there was a cacao conference in kona involving uh, the usda and and sitar a number of growers, as well as USDA scientists from the mainland, as well as a couple of the big American chocolate companies. I was at the uh, conference and was inspired by what they thought was uh, some possibility for Hawaii. I was looking for new crops to work with, and I had set aside some of my earlier crop assignments and picked up cacao and kava. Well, it seems like, you know, now there are farmers on so many islands now, and the interest is great. It just seems like Mm -hmm. over the last decade, things are finally starting to fall in place, and you've got people Mm -hmm. with passion to kind of take this to another level. So what's your hope for the future, for the the next 10 years? Well, the hope is good, but they've got to uh, get rid of just growing seedling trees and start growing grafted trees. Grafted trees will provide you a more reliable, higher yield, better quality, and the kind of uniformity that farmers need when they want to manage their uh, crops most effectively. We did a big variety uh, trial with the Hawaii uh, seedlings here in the state and a few uh, international varieties, 
And we're now into the second generation of that trial. Dan O'Doherty has been doing a lot of work in making uh, crosses and evaluating them at the farm in Maui, which I hope survived the fire. It, it was burnt once already in the big uh, Lahaina fires of about, uh, I guess, about five years ago. But anyhow, yes, things look very promising. If we moved into, into uh, grafted varieties, we'll be able to probably uh, double our uh, current yields. We do have a cacao association. and A white chocolate and cacao association, which is statewide, and then there's one in East Hawaii, the East Hawaii Cacao Association. There's well, probably one in Kona. Well, ca- can you talk about this whole idea of, you know, what is Hawaiian coffee, you know, Kona coffee, and what is Hawaiian chocolate? I mean, how does the association and how do the growers deal with that standard? You know, because we don't make enough just yet to really, you know, have a full-fledged industry. Um, so, so how does that work? At what point can you say, this is Hawaiian chocolate? One of the first things that the uh, Hawaii Cacao and Chocolate Association did in I think it was around 2012, was work with the USDA to clarify the administrative rules for the labeling of Hawaiian chocolate. And the deal is if you uh, want to uh, call it Hawaiian chocolate or by any other island, Hawaiian island name, 100% of the, uh, the cocoa liquor or the beans used to make that have to be grown in Hawaii to be called that. If you're going to be uh, creating blends, which is a very uh, normal thing to do with when you're making chocolate, you want your Hershey bar or your Nestle's bar to taste the same uh, year after year, then uh, you must label that. It has to be at least 51% Hawaii-grown bean. The other 49% can be from someplace else, but it's got to be labeled Hawaii blend chocolate. So these rules were, have already been laid down and have been around for over 10 years now. And I think we can provide it's enforced. Uh, and the labeling uh, specifies that the uh, content of uh, the Hawaii bean in that chocolate has to be clearly stated on the package. We should be able to avoid the Kona coffee blend issues that have been bothering people in Kona for almost 40 years. That was retired University of Hawaii professor Skip Binbender, who wraps up our look at this week's series on island-grown chocolate. Treat yourself to a bar of the good stuff this weekend. Savor it. Support local. Give Hawaii Craft Chocolate a go. Well, that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we look at ways to help Maui navigate through this difficult time. Share your stories. Help us unite the community. Call 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HPR website or wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. John DeMello produced a Becker quiz theme, our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.